question, which is just another interesting question in the series of interesting discussions we're having about science and how the sausage is made, as Cody would say. What, Wendy, are you working on right now? We know that you work with information from large health system, electronic uh, medical records, which everyone is kind of familiar with because you see your doctor typing away on a computer while they're trying to talk to you and, you know, putting orders in for your medicines and all that stuff. I promise you they would much rather be face-to-face with you than in front of the computer, too, for what it's worth. Yes, I, I speak from personal experience. But so, Wendy, what do you do, what kind of research do you do as it relates to the electronic health record, and what are some of the things that you're working on, and what are some of the things that you've learned from your research? I I made a really big shift from my PhD level research in molecular and cell biology. I was studying neuroimmunology of behavior in animals, which was very, very cool and fun. But for my postdoc, I really wanted to shift gears and focus more directly on human mental health. And so I found a postdoc at a place called Geisinger Health System, which is an integrated healthcare system located in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. What and, is a postdoc? Oh, so <laughs> <laughs> after somewhere between four and approximately six years of pain and suffering of the <laughs> PhD process and writing a dissertation and except for at UC Berkeley where we don't have to defend it, usually defending it, you become a PhD and a doctor and it doesn't stop there. <laughs> you then have to find another lab that is doing things that you want to work on in even more depth than you worked on for your PhD and that is what is called a postdoctoral fellowship. And so in it used to be the case where professors nowadays that have been in their roles for 20 to 30 years mm-hmm. often were able to finish their PhDs by around the age of, say, 27 mm-hmm. and immediately get hired as faculty at various universities. And that is no longer the case. Oh, no. So... Uh, <laughs> I appreciate your concern. <laughs> it's pretty bad. <laughs> so what's kind of funny, so I finished my PhD in 2015 at UC Berkeley and uh, started my postdoc that same year. And it, I'm now four years into it and probably going to complete one additional year of that. Okay. And so five years of postdoc is really short for biological sciences, usually. Mm -hmm. Wow. So when I was applying for postdocs and going around and visiting labs that were more in line with the molecular biology science that I was doing as a PhD student, the postdocs were saying that on average they finish in sometimes six, sometimes seven. One of the labs I was in, most people finished by eight or nine. Mm -hmm. That's Six, seven, eight, or nine more years. Wow. Working at a postdoc salary that's usually in the ballpark of $50,000, give or take a little bit, mm-hmm. well into your late 30s. 
So this is a really unsustainable system that mm-hmm. we currently have, which is which is unfortunate. But I made the very smart decision to switch to informatics. Mm-hmm. And so I do bioinformatics and electronic health record informatics. Okay. And so what that means is that I mainly use data that already exists and I then don't have to create the experiments and wait for the results. I can just use pre-existing data Got it. Uh, to ask biological questions that I'm interested in. So I shifted from Berkeley to to this hospital system in Pennsylvania that had the foresight to adopt electronic medical record systems instead of using paper medical Mm -hmm. records back in the mid-1990s. Wow. Was there internet back then? (laughs) I think it was the dawn of the internet. That's like... That's when you got the AOL discs in the mail every couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 don't, I think there was an internet. Okay. I think it was mostly dial-up at that point. Okay. <laughs> but there were computers and there were personalized computers and there were data, there were ways to store a fair amount of data. Okay. Obviously, all of that has accelerated tremendously and the Affordable Care Act mandated that everyone really was needed to get on to the electronic health record bandwagon. And the hope of that is that we'll be able to have more information exchange, more information and knowledge development by mining or investigating the existing electronic health records people from all over the country and throughout their lifetimes. And so this is an innovation that's fantastic, but one of the unfortunate issues is that the the original electronic health record, and you too as physicians can tell me whether this is true or not, but it's mainly <laughs> driven by billing. Is absolutely <laughs> still the case to an infuriating degree. <laughs> and so ultimately, we're really, when I say I'm using electronic health records to study people's health, I'm not. I'm using their electronic health billing records in order to try to to infer information about people's diseases and uh, health status and their treatment re- recovery profiles and trajectories. But, you know, you use what you can. Yeah. And we have this amazing database of electronic health records on a large number of people from Pennsylvania that I've been utilizing to study depression for the last couple of years. So I kind of look at about 300,000 people over the course of 10 to 11 years. And I have access to all of their hospitalizations, mm-hmm. all of their outpatient visits. So when they go see their primary care physician, or if they go for physical therapy, or they go for an eye doctor visit, all of this information is captured as in various levels of usability uh, data. And one of the things that I'm particularly interested in is the way in which people with depression tend to be missed mm-hmm. for a long period of time. And so if they don't get diagnosed with the true underlying condition mm-hmm. that they're experiencing that's giving rise to their the signs and symptoms that they're complaining about, we, we end up in a situation where the disease can get worse over time, the longer it's undiagnosed and untreated. And it also impacts their physical health in yeah. a lot of different ways too. There's a couple of different projects that I've been focusing on recently 
recently, one of which Mm -hmm. involves looking at how people who may have underlying depression tend to go to the emergency department for pain complaints, physical pain. And as I'm sure clinicians who are psychiatrists can can describe better than I can what all the signs and symptoms can be, one of the signs of depression can be what 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 would you call it exactly? Uh, somatization? Yeah, usually we call it somatization. The term used to be somatoform disorder, but we'd call it like somatic complaints. Yeah, and yeah. so... And with, what is that? That's where you have pain, which is associated with some other part of the body, but it's being significantly worsened by your depression because all mm. pain is actually a conversation between your brain and the rest of the body. Mm. You either have something that's mildly painful that's seen as very painful, mm-hmm. or you have something that's not normally even seen as painful that's just like a constant signal, like your socks rubbing against your yeah. feet might be interpreted as pain against your skin because you're brain is listening so hard for for pain because it's in an altered negative state to try very and, cool you know. so just to emphasize it's not somatization is not like something's in your head and you're just you're faking it or you're pretending you're or you're imagining it it's that weird communication between the body and the brain that Cody described yeah so I mean it is real pain the thing I like to say is all pain is in your head, no matter what happens. I mean, if, yeah. if you come and chop my arm off, I'm feeling that in my brain. Yeah. I might My arm that is gone might hurt in the arm, <laughs> even if the arm is somewhere else. So, I mean, I think the, the whole all in your head complaint is kind of missing the point. Yeah. But that's kind of yeah. neither here nor there. Yeah. Back to you, Wendy. <laughs> well, and so I'll just reiterate and kind of put another spin on it of like how I think yeah. about it is that depression is a biological disease affecting a, one of the most important organs, arguably to me, the most important organ mm-hmm. in Dude, the yeah. entire system. You know, you can you can like Cody said, cut off your arm or even replace your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, the or, great betrayer. <laughs> it should be replaced. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can't you can't transplant or or injure your brain in a significant way and still be what we would consider ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so but it like any other biological piece of you can have issues and can ha- have have biologically driven problems. And so depression is one of those things. And one of the things that depression can do when it results in this hypersensitization to pain or misinterpretation of relatively normal stimuli that your brain would typically be able to ignore turns into something that is perceived as painful. I I relate it to something that almost everybody, at least from my home state of Arizona, has experienced of a sunburn. And so when you damage your skin mm-hmm. and have you develop something that's called that's a hypersensitization of that skin. And mm-hmm. so even putting on your shirt can yeah. be exceedingly painful. Yeah. And it's not that suddenly somehow your shirt has turned into knives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's that your central nervous system is communicating with the damaged tissue in order to overemphasize the experience of the what is normally a, a totally fine experience to exacerbate it into something. And your brain is doing something that it evolved to do in order to make 
you more viable long-term evolutionarily. It's trying to protect you. But imagine if that's happening when you don't have a sunburn, when you don't have sensitive skin that can be damaged further after a sunburn. And instead, your brain, the central nervous system, has mistaken some cues or gone down a molecular pathway that or a system pathway that is tricking you into thinking that Mm -hmm. or or experiencing things similarly to as if you had a sunburn Mm. Uh, so your your brain is capable of all kinds of things including like what cody was talking about with if you cut off your arm you can still feel pain and that's called phantom pain Mm -hmm. Um, and it's something that is derived from your central nervous system your entire experience of life is meant to have your brain interpret the world to keep you as safe as possible that makes sense when that goes wrong yeah it's the wrong time or the wrong place or the wrong amount of time then it's disease. But depression and a lot of the signs and symptoms affiliated with depression honestly are a feature of our biology, uh-huh. not yeah. a not a bug. It's not something that has gone it's the process has gone wrong. Yeah. The software, the <laughs> the programming has some kind of useful time and space in which it can help you, such as when you have the flu. Yeah. You often have a lot of what's called sickness behavior, which yeah. is very, very similar to a lot of things that overlap with depression. That is a beautiful explanation. I feel like I haven't thought about depression or just any disorder of the brain in that way. So thank you for that. And so what Cody, happens when you get a molecular and cell biologist thinking know, about this stuff? This. <laughs> we need to get more of this crosstalk, Cody. I, I like this. For sure. Also, I have to ask you if... Based on Wendy's last description, I don't know if the heart is the great betrayer. It definitely is. What would you call the brain then? The brain is capable of so much more than the heart. Now, the brain is capable of the deepest form of betrayal. However, as Wendy said, the brain is what makes you you. Like, if if I am going to keep one organ, I'm going to keep my brain. Like if if we go if we all go on some sort of transhumanist journey where we start swapping ourselves out with cybernetic hardware, I don't know about you guys, but I'm saving my brain for last. I'm with you, Cody. Yeah, the heart friggin' bag of meat that's gonna like what? What do you do? You move blood. Oh, you're you're great, heart. What do you do, brain? Oh, I synthesize all the things into a cohesive sense of consciousness. Okay, you can stay. <laughs> okay, fair point, fair point. Um, but I will concede that, yes, in fact, the brain can betray you in deep ways that yeah. no other organ possibly could. Yeah. I mean, depression kind of feels like a betrayal because it's, as you said, it's a it's a, a change in the wiring and in the, the processing and the reaction of the brain to various things that happen. Yeah. Yeah, it is, and it is really hard. And I understand why people, why there is so much stigma associated with mental illnesses mm-hmm. because the brain is the most sensitive, intimate piece of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's particularly 
scary when we lose a piece of what we identify as us. And it's it's particularly difficult with depression, which is one of the reasons why I focus on depression, partly because of its prevalence. About 17% of people will experience a major depressive episode at some mm-hmm. point in their life. It's the most prevalent of the mental illnesses. And then it's also one of the, the disease itself makes such a dramatic impact that it really does augment your reality and your view of your own experience of life. And and the disease itself causes things that make it so challenging to address and to accept and to be out about. Mm -hmm. So when something is mysterious, think of cancer 50 years ago. Yeah. Before we knew what it was, before we knew what was killing people, it was stigmatized. It was, if somebody developed cancer in their family, no one would talk about it. They wouldn't seek care. They would hide it from their friends and family and, and just let the person waste away because it was terrifying. We Mm -hmm. knew so little about it. And the research of it was what helped us understand, uh, improve how we treated it, Mm -hmm. as well as improve our understanding and let people cognize about what it is and how it it occurs and what we can look for early on to mm-hmm. stop it. And so I think that mental health is at where cancer was 50 mm. years ago, where we need more research. We need to address the stigma associated with it so we can mm-hmm. do better research. And But where depression is different, and a lot of mental illnesses are different, then cancer is that if you have cancer, the cancer is not making you think that you don't deserve to get better. Depression does have that. Yeah, and that is a scary thing. I see it all the time clinically. I think I may have mentioned this on Mm -hmm. other episodes, but man, it's just, it's wild to see people go from not only feeling awful, but truly believing that they either deserve to feel awful or that they're never going to get better. And there's nothing you can tell them, no matter how many times you've seen the contrary, that is going to convince them otherwise. But once the appropriate treatments are on board, it can completely turn things around. But yeah, it gets ignored for so long. Was it your presentation, Wendy, that was talking about how the average time to from onset to treatment is like nine years? I yeah, saw that. It, it, it was uh, six to eight years. Six to eight years. People okay. from the onset of symptoms, mm-hmm. the delay to even seek treatment for depression was on the order of six to eight years. Wow. And so people are trying to will themselves through something that is a biological disease rather than seek treatment early and engage in preventative strategies. Mm -hmm. And a lot of mood disorders, such as depression and bipolar disorder, are episodic, naturally. Mm -hmm. And so you may spontaneously get better after a few weeks or months or you know, God forbid, years. Yeah. Um, but once you come out of it, you then will hope that it will never happen again. But the more episodes you've had, the more likely you are to develop another episode. And so it, it often will result in people being like, oh, well, I'm through that phase and minimize the impact it had on their lives and just be happy that they're out of it for mm-hmm. the moment. But because there's not a 
this and this is my opinion, I, I would say that I think that there's not enough knowledge and information, basic understanding of what depression is and what mental illnesses look like early mm-hmm. on before they're wrecking people's lives and destroying their academics or their work or their relationships mm-hmm. in ways that are often ir- irreparable. So I'm really dedicated to trying to address stigma and Mm -hmm. trying to increase understanding and get people to try to do as many things proactively as they possibly can in order to identify and address and support people to get help earlier. Yeah. And that seems, I think the gap in understanding is a real problem because I know I was in undergrad before I understood that there were like, not necessarily permanent, but definitely tangible biological changes like the the dendrites start to withdraw even in animal models of depression and like your brain is literally losing its ability to communicate with other parts of itself it's not something that's just like oh some sad thoughts are happening and therefore i should you know sit out a couple of parties and hang out by myself until it blows over you know Mm -hmm. Yeah, and because I mean, but also because it there are things that phenocopy, so to speak, various aspects of early depression signs and symptoms. Grief. Yeah. Grief is one of the main things that does have a lot of overlapping experiences to depression, yeah. but it's fundamentally different in many different ways. And but there's there's a number of people who will say, "Oh, well, it's just because this thing happened to you, this is hard, you'll get over it. And and rather than, and they're coming from a place of, of, of support and care. They, mo- like most of the time, I think that people truly are trying to get you to buck up and they're trying to help, but they, but that's because of a lack of understanding of the biological nature of, and the prevalence of depression and mood disorders and mental illnesses. And the, the fact that we don't have knowledge about it makes them more mysterious and therefore scary. And so when somebody is experiencing for the first time, when they go off to college or they go to grad school, an episode of, of, of severe depression, which is highly prevalent in, in graduate students and in med- medical students, and residents and in nursing students, about 50% of people, students will experience depression or overwhelming anxiety. Yeah. And so in these high pressure, difficult situations, students are often away from home. They may have broken up with someone, a partner, because they moved across the country or across the state. There may be other major financial challenges that they're now facing. I know med student debt is just, it's its terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I, I honestly am very happy <laughs> that a happy accident that I became so obsessed with research science and avoided going to med school because of the the crippling debt that students yeah. come out of med school with carrying. And so, you know, there's lots of different issues that are going on that, that are facing people these days. And I am 100% for the increasing diversity of women and underrepresented minorities mm-hmm. in the sciences, in higher education, in medicine, in clinical care. 
But those individuals are going to be experiencing and coming from backgrounds and experiences that the current, the, the existing kind of old guard never had to deal with. They don't understand. Like, yeah. so if you're, if you're a 60 year old man in science, you do not know what it's like to be a woman in science. If you are, you know, someone whose parents were professors, mm -hmm. um, you do not know what it's like to have, be a first generation college student, let alone you're the first one to go into a graduate program. Mm -hmm. There's so many different examples of, of additional lived experiences that are incredibly challenging for current generations of students that are difficult for, you know, the old guard to understand. But it's possible and they should. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And having a smaller network of support that understands what you're going through has got to be really challenging because it is, like you say, if you're not surrounded by people or come from a background of people who have been through the similar experiences, then, I mean, they might not even know how to frame the things that are plaguing you. So for graduate, back to kind of graduate students a little bit and their mental health, like one of, one of the things that was very, you know, I mentioned that about 50%, a bunch of surveys and, and investigations have come out in the recent years with all these numbers saying mm -hmm. about 50% of graduate students will develop depression. And that's a lot. Yeah. And that's consistent with my experience. We, when I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley, lost a classmate to suicide and depression wow. uh, about midway through, and we were devastated by the loss of this friend. And this really drove us, a bunch of us, to get together and start talking to mm -hmm. one another on a much more real level that we were before. And what we realized that was the most shocking and most surprising was that all of us had been suffering. Mm -hmm. All of us had been struggling with anxiety or depression or some other aspect of some other named thing like mm -hmm. imposter syndrome or there's there's a lot of things that you can yeah. be struggling with but it had turned out like as there was about nine of us sitting at a table yeah. like really digging in and being like what happened with our friend like how did we how did we miss it how did we lose them and we realized that every single one of us had been to see a counselor at some point. Oh. We had all sought psychiatric care or psychological care. Yeah. And some of us psychiatric care. And yeah. we had never shared it with one another. Wow. We and we were good friends. Wow. And it was horrible to realize how much we were trying to hide it from one another. Yeah. That all of us were under the impression that we were the only ones having a hard time. Wow. And we went to this great effort to not mention it, to put on a happy face mm -hmm. when we were around people, to avoid people and, and use excuses like, oh, well, I have, you know, very believable excuses. I have a 13 hour experiment. I can't come out. And so we were all high intelligence, high functioning, high achieving individuals mm -hmm. that were a number of us were clinically depressed. Mm -hmm. And the disease itself makes tricks you, makes you think that you are the only one 
it, it creates this level of loneliness and it also mm-hmm. creates a, a hopelessness and often results in, and the stigma really drove us to hide it completely, which was what we decided to do something about. Mm-hmm. And so there was a group of us that got together and created what we called the MCB, Molecular and Cell Biology Grad Network. And okay. our mission was to create events and peer networking and resource guides for other students to be able to support each other for complete success. Scientifically, we were well supported and, yeah. and getting excellent, amazing training, but we were clearly falling apart in all these mm-hmm. other ways. And so we decided to go to create a bunch of events where it was grad students only, mm-hmm. no faculty. And we would talk about real issues with each major transition throughout grad school. So first year, you have to decide which labs to rotate in and which lab to choose. And then in second year, you have to prepare for qualifying exams, which is current form of horrific torture. (laughs) 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 You get locked in a room with four Berkeley professors for up to three hours where they just eviscerate you, mostly. Figuratively. (laughs) Um, But then third year, you, and this is where we lost our friend, was third year, you go off, you've passed your qualifying exams, you're now a PhD candidate. And you, if you have a great supportive lab or you're an outgoing person who's in the first couple years developed a really strong, close friend group, you probably have that support system in place um, with Mm -hmm. folks who understand what you're doing and, and why you do 13-hour experiments and you will, you've got the support that if something starts changing, something starts shifting, your friends will will kind of come in and be like, you know, I'm noticing these changes. Yeah. Um, you know, are you are you okay? You know, you can talk to me about it. Yeah. You know? And you can have that support. And what we realized though was that if you happen to be in a more toxic lab environment, if yeah. you happen to be in a t- small lab, if you happen to be in too big of a lab where yeah. you're just one of like 25 people, it's it can be you can get lost. You can get lost yeah. and just kind of sail over the edge of despair by yourself and no one will see you go. Wow. Yeah. And so that's why we decided to create this network to to increase awareness to address stigma and to break down these barriers or or these unreasonable expectations we hold ourselves to and to promote as much as we can amongst our other students our cohort that you you know we're all going to have a hard time and mm-hmm. there are ways through it and the way the best way through it is together and so here are all these opportunities to talk about it, to think about it, to reach out, to have support mm-hmm. and that it's okay to not be okay. And we, we got you. We're going to take care of you. We're going to take care of each other. That is amazing. And so is this network still in place and growing today? Yeah, yeah. I was actually just in the Bay Area a couple weeks ago, and they not only are still going, yeah. they are expanding. That is nice. awesome. And so the Berkeley faculty decided to really step up this yeah. year, and they formed a. They wanted to contribute more yeah. um, as well, and so they formed a wellness committee 
so they have representatives from faculty, staff, uh-huh. grad, graduate students, postdocs, and undergrads in order to talk about the departmental wellness altogether and see, uh, make sure that they're keeping track, the needs of the students at, mm-hmm. and, and staff and faculty at all levels. They have now initiated faculty training mm-hmm. in mental health awareness and preparedness mm-hmm. and how to recognize students that are having a hard time and mm-hmm. how to and give the give the faculty tools wow. and communication devices to wow. to thoughtfully and respectfully and compassionately interact with students and not just pretend that what they're noticing goes away yeah. on its own. And so yeah, it's been it's been hugely appreciated. Yeah, um, and then the wellness committee and the MCB grad network worked together to they they collaborated on creating this day of wellness mm-hmm. that happened on on the twenty seventh just recently, and I got to be there at the beginning of it. It was wow. really really cool. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing to see what has happened because I like I said I I left there in two thousand fifteen, so the fact that it's still Going and going mm-hmm. strong and and even developing and evolving into better and better resource for students there mm-hmm. is awesome. That is that's super awesome. I, I wanna just unpack a couple things from everything that you've said. So one, you said earlier that depression affects maybe seventeen percent of people as a whole in the community and for graduate students and students who are in nursing, medical school, all these kind of STEM careers where they're getting advanced training, they have depression rates of 50%. Is that right? So about half of them. So over double the rate of depression in these people versus people in the community. And the next thing, thinking about all the different factors that you said lead to this kind of pressure cooker situation where more people are having depression, the long work hours, the perception that they have really high expectations, that everyone around them has high expectations of them, the fact that there's not as much sharing um, between their colleagues and them about what they're going through and the idea that people who are more isolated are more prone to not feeling supported or not seeking the help they need and feeling like they just have to suffer it alone. All of those things, I think, do point to the formula for how depression affects probably people in many different groups, like maybe groups of people who are in the police force or in any other profession. And so I think it was cool that you basically highlighted all these qualities that can lead to communities having an unhealthy way of addressing depression. And then it's so cool that we got to hear about how MCB addressed all of those issues and how you worked to write all those wrongs that led to your friend's death by suicide. But yeah, I I think it just points to how we can be so much better in the way that we support people who are depressed or who have depression. And then Cody, I don't know if you want to talk about the same stigmas within medical training. Oh yeah, it I mean it's a massive problem in medical training and I mean I've had similar experiences someone who was just about to start the MD PhD program I was mm-hmm. in he died by suicide just I think it was just a few weeks before he was meant to start and again you've got people who should by ink and paper have every opportunity and every reason to be in a good place 
succumbing to this illness that can strike anybody and is in fact made a lot worse by some of these life transitions and pressures that uh, accompany grad school and med school. I mean, mm-hmm. there's the these factors of burnout, these factors of learned helplessness, which I think grad school is the most perfect paradigm of learned helplessness that could ever be created, right? Like you can leave this training program and get to a better pay grade and much more rewarding tier of work theoretically mm-hmm. if you can expand the body of human knowledge. But, you know, if you're if your idea about how to expand human knowledge is not the correct one, you might be stuck here for what, two more years or whatever. Mm. But I, I mean I think we could definitely dig a lot deeper into the vulnerabilities specific to medical and graduate training. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest thing that scares me is this culture of silence and this culture that overwork is a virtue and that if you value taking time for self-care, if you value obtaining support or mm-hmm. don't particularly care for copious amounts of sleep deprivation, you're somehow like less of a person. I think that's an unspoken, no, if I want to say bias, but yeah, culture, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Among those fields. And, you know, thinking about how does it affect everyone as a whole, I think if, and, you know, obviously people in the community are also struggling with depression, but if our of our doctors and our scientists who are supposed to improve everyone's health through treating people who have illness and also thinking of new ways to treat illness. If they're also struggling and not being supported, there's probably a lot of of work that they can't accomplish because of their own challenges that they're facing. So yeah. I think it it highlights that this is not just a specific issue to a specific group of people that it can have far-reaching effects. For for both of you, the friends that you lost, we will never know what they may have contributed to science, to medicine, how many people they may have affected through their actions and their thoughts because they're now gone. The losses due to suicide are, of course, the most tragic and the most heavy-hitting. Yeah. But even at the much smaller level, anybody who's either been depressed or has known someone who's uh, suffered from either depression or any other mood disorder, the loss of, of positive impact from the weeks or months that they can't be the person they normally are. Very true. Yeah. It's a smaller tragedy, but if you add all that up, it's really mind boggling quantity of, of lost good. Yeah, if we're thinking about things from a very like billing productivity <laughs> mindset, where maybe we should be doing more of encouraging people to be open with each other and supportive and having people who are in positions of power over them have the tools and skills to recognize and talk to them about depression and their mood and how they're feeling because a, it's the right thing to do and it helps everyone be better. But two, if we're looking at it from a very money-minded framework, it probably would save money and save time and increase productivity, which everyone loves in big companies. <laughs> I went to a consulting business consulting yeah. meeting or something the other day and, and was introduced to this idea of business speak presenteeism. 
So oh, most people sick. think about absenteeism of like yeah. if you get sick with the flu and like yeah. you have a repressed immune system and you get sick with the flu more often than other people, then you know you have this issue with trade off of absenteeism. How many days are you going to be absent and not able to be working? But if you're operating at a reduced capacity. Mm-hmm. You with such as with depression, where you are able to physically come into work, but mm-hmm. you're especially in the in the field of medicine or the field of science where you lose your your acute awareness, the clarity of your thought and creativity, especially in science. Like a lot of what we do is synthesizing information and and coming up with new hypotheses. That's a lot of creativity mm-hmm. that you know you talk to anyone who's in the arts. And they, you, you know, they'll yeah. talk about how fickle the muses are. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, if you're if you're suffering from depression, that reduces your creative capacity mm-hmm. and certainly reduces a physician's ability to pay attention to and notice the more subtle aspects of what a patient is telling That's you. True, yeah. Or you might even miss like something that is a little more obvious yeah. on a test on a test result from yeah. you know that has twenty five different features and yeah. one. Thing things a little off and you would normally notice it yeah. and synthesize that with the other information you've garnered and you might you know delay somebody's diagnosis and delay yeah. somebody's treatment and so presenteeism is a major major issue especially for high achieving high intelligence individuals who are holding themselves to these super super high standards mm-hmm. and honestly can function at a basic level, mm-hmm. even though you've lost so much of what makes them a great doctor or a great scientist mm-hmm. um, for the period of time that they're going untreated. And I think that the, so there's an analogy that I've been kind of playing with recently or came mm-hmm. to me recently where if you go to an Olympic training center where you're training the world's best athletes, mm-hmm. you do not encourage them to continue to work at full capacity when they sprain an ankle. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. just going to ruin them. Yeah. And so the fact that higher education facilities are not treating our minds yeah. of the students the same way that a Olympic training center would treat the bodies yeah. of the the athletes. Like you need to be able to function at the highest capacity so you should have a prevention strategy and and not a crisis response strategy. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really sad because it is, especially in medicine, there's some parts of our job that mm-hmm. are really just being a, a warm body with some degree of training in the right place to respond to things. Yeah. But to like the difference between being a doctor and being a good doctor is huge. And that's what requires these things that are lost with depression, but like because you can still function well enough to show up and there's this massive pressure that you show up and continue to serve your function. I think there's so much lost in your ability to contribute and also your ability to develop into a better physician if you're in like the training phase, for example. Yeah. Like that's one of the things that concerns me. The workload, for example, in in my residency has just month after month of pretty intense uh, rotations. Yeah. And I worry that by the end of it, I'm not going to get as much out as I might have because I never had the breathing room I might have wanted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Thank you so much for for joining us, Wendy. We learned so much, I think, about things that are really close to the the nuts and bolts of, of being healthy that we don't necessarily think about or talk about all the time. So it was really nice to get into the more subtle aspects of what makes us healthy. Yeah, it was my pleasure to be here. This is such a wide-ranging uh, conversation. I, I usually am restricted to talking about one thing at a time, so this was fun for me. Do you want to plug a website or an email or anything if anybody wants to get a hold of you or figure out what you're about or hire you? Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> or hire me. I will be on the job market in this coming fall. So I do have a website, wendymarieingram.com, and there is a contact page on that so people can get in touch with me that way. And if you guys want to get in touch with Kavita or I, we can be found on Twitter at Against Disease. We can be found on Instagram at Against Disease. We can be found on Facebook at Humanity Against Disease. And our email is againstdisease at gmail.com. All right. Thanks for listening to this thing. See you guys later.